0: Well thank you praise team, it's good you have it here today. Good morning everybody, it's, um, thank you so much for coming out here on this beautiful day to worship the Lord, a time for us to get refreshed, renourished, nourished and strengthened. This is our week number four in our series of eight on the book of Revelation. And um, I want to make sure that if you did not get one of these right here, it says, dear church, everything's going to be okay, right on the cover. It is a guide, um, a user's guide to walk through the book of Revelation. Each of the chapters is briefly summarized. The symbols, the numbers are explained. I think you'll find this very beneficial. There should be some on the back table on your way out. If you do not have one or if you lost yours, please pick another one up. Also, just want to uh, want to say that if you had not had the chance and would like to, this is an excellent book on the Book of Revelation, written by Michael Newman, our District President. Um, it's this has been my primary resource outside of the Book of Re- Revelation. Um, I, I, don't agree with absolutely everything he says in here, but I love most of what he says in here. And the reason I say that is because I encourage everybody to use more than one resource when you're studying a book like the book of Revelation or any book in the Bible for that matter. Um, but what I want to share with with you today, um, our approach throughout this series has been to talk about the letters that are written to churches like ours back in in these days, because. Revelation is so often misunderstood and misrepresented, but it is a book meant to be understood because the people who are reading this needed to know that God was still in control in their lives. And so it was written in their language, and we just need to learn a little bit about their language, their history, so we can understand it as they did, so we can read it through their eyes. But it's also a book that's meant to be useful. Um, I, I don't know what it would be like to be threatened with death or have a family member threatened with death if I didn't recant my faith in Jesus Christ. I'd like to say I would not recant my faith. I would not take it back. But there are people all over the world today who are faced with that decision in their lives. It's, it's sad. It's really sad. Well, the people in, in this day um, were definitely facing that, and that's why God wanted them to receive these words written by the Apostle John, God through John, out the prison, um, the cell, to the people so they could be encouraged as they were being tortured and killed and put to the test in their lives. Now, what God's describing throughout this book is very clearly a spiritual battle. It's like he has, he has pulled back the curtain And let them see and let us see what's really going on behind the scenes, things you can't really see. There's a series of books by Frank Peretti who does kind of that same thing, only that's fiction and this is real, all right? Um, And it's, it's always intrigued me because we don't see the tangible spiritual forces that are out there, but they are real. And so that's why the book of Revelation I find to be so fascinating. And so I think so meaningful for us to study. So, we're going to look at each of the letters. We are looking at the third letter to a church, the church in Pergamum, and, um, and we're also going to look at some key concepts throughout the book of Revelation that I believe really specifically um, best address the church that we're talking about uh, today. Now, so far we have looked at the key concepts of the Antichrist, which is a term not even used in the book of Revelation, but whatever you hear anybody write about or talk about the book of Revelation, it's described, well, the Antichrist in Revelation. Well, I think the best reference to understand who the Antichrist is is to look up in First and 2 John, the same author who wrote those letters, and uh, And he addresses it very clearly. Anyone who's against Christ, who stands in the stead of Christ and says, I am the way, not just Jesus or not even Jesus at all, that's the Antichrist. Makes sense. And he also says they're here now. This was 2,000 years ago. They're already here today. So this idea that there's some Antichrist coming on the horizon, it's already here. They are already here, people, institutions standing in the stead of Jesus Christ. The two witnesses we talked about a couple weeks ago, where it says there will be two witnesses, and I know that's another confusing term, and people say maybe it's Moses and Elijah. However, in a very literal sense, the scriptures in Revelation say the witness, the two witnesses are the church, the golden lampstand, which is the church. So then the question is, which two churches? Well, I don't believe it's talking about two churches out of the seven or so, it's talking about... Two ways to witness, and when Jesus ascended into heaven, He said, "You will be my witnesses." He's saying, "I want you to witness in two ways: one, love God, and two, love people. Love the people you put in your lives." This is really important because I shared with you before. One of my biggest struggles in life is is really accepting injustice. I have a difficult time accepting injustice, and and it's really hard. When injustice is happening, to be faithful to being a good witness to God, to Jesus, uh, to love God and then love the people, especially those who are doing the injustice to you or the people you believe are doing it to you. So these people are under that kind of stress. And then God is saying to them, you know, I'm going to take you out. I'm going to take your witness away because that's not good. So no matter what you're going through, get back to loving me, God is saying, and to loving the people I'm putting in your life, regardless of the circumstances, just know in the end everything's going to be okay. We also talked last week about the last days. What are the last days? Well, I think it's very clear that we're in those last days right now. And I say that because, again, I don't think there's going to be some major symbolic change where all of a sudden, oh, now we have a 1,000 years. I believe we're in those 1,000 years. They're happening right now. They're as long or as short as God intends them to be. But we are in a time of trouble. We are in a time of tribulation. You cannot deny that. Read Matthew 24. It makes it clear. So we have a spiritual battle going on. It's a battle for souls, and Jesus is revealing that battle to us and to the people that are dealing with this. So some of the concepts, the three concepts we're going to look at today are actually one concept. It's all about Satan, who's called the dragon, the beast, and the number 666. We'll get to those. First, let's look at the letter written to the church of Pergamum. In chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, again, the references that you're going to see on the screen, I really encourage you to write those down, do your own study on them. Um, Use the the guide that I, I shared with you a few moments ago. That'll be helpful as well. So, chapter 2, verse 12 begins. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write this, John. So, Jesus is telling John to write this. The angel we've discussed, and we'll keep mentioning it, is a messenger. It's the pastor, the pastor of the church who then reads these letters orally to the people. These are the words, Jesus says, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double edged sword. A sharp, double edged sword. You, you hear that a few times in the Bible, in Galatians, and Hebrews, about the sword that cuts two ways. The Word of God cuts two ways, guilty or not guilty. And as I was thinking about this, I actually forgot to pick up the sword for the angel Gabriel scene. How many of you know what I'm talking about? The angel Gabriel scene. That is a, that's a mighty sword, double-edged. It's actually quite dangerous, too. Um, that's why we get only young studs from high school to hold that up there, and they are Gabriel. And by the end of three nights, this arm is twice the size of this arm. But anyway, it's a heavy sword. But it cuts two ways, guilty and not guilty. That's the way the Word of God is. He's going to let you know. He's like in our conscience going, yes, that's right, or no, that's wrong. Um, It goes on to say here in verse 13, I know where you live where Satan has his throne. If you just take that out of context, I'm thinking, wow, that is a low blow, you know? I know where you live. (laughs) That's where Satan lives. That's where he's ruling. It's true. That is the reality. What he's really saying is, you're experiencing it more, maybe, than other parts of the world because, because Satan himself was there. Satan is not... A God creature or or a God-like being is a creature of God, created by God. It is not all present, right? It is not all powerful. It's nothing to God. God made Satan. But Satan's a lot more powerful than, than we are. And so it's a very local presence. And right now, he is there. He is marked as Christian churches, and he's going after them Says, Satan has his throne with you. It's the same with us as well in our world. But I'll go on from here. Yet you remain true to my name. All right? Here are the words of encouragement. Even with that fact, you're remaining true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. We aren't exactly sure who Antipas is. We think we know who it is. But we do know that he was killed by being roasted in a bronze bowl. Why do I share that with you? Just to give you an idea about the kind of persecution these people were facing. Imagine in the heat of the day being put in a bronze bowl, right? Saying, Brandon, here's a bowl, climb in there, there you go in the heat of the day oh, and if that's not hot enough, we're going to put a bonfire underneath you because we are going to burn you alive. That's the kind of suffering. That's the kind of persecution these people were facing. I mean, the the most heinous ways to be killed um, if they did not recant their faith in the crucified and risen uh, Jesus Christ. So why does he mention Antipas in, in this letter here? Well, the reality in which they lived was, it was a living hell to them. It, it truly was. And to hear Jesus mention someone they knew and loved, and they knew who was faithful to the end, it's like he's saying to them, wow, I'm there. I'm right in the midst with you. I'm in this mess. Just know that and trust me. And no matter how it looks, no matter what happened to Antipas or your friends and family, it's going to be alright. It's going to be okay. Because I am God and I'm there with you. That's the message he's wanting to give them. It goes on to say, though, after all the encouragement, he always pulls out the law. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. You read the book of Numbers, chapters 20, 21, 22, 30-something. You can read about Balaam, a, a, a prophet, false prophet, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. I just, the reason he shares this little bit of information with them that he knows is because he knows some of the people have been following Balaam. Balaam, though he appeared to be faithful to God, was not. He used the old bait and switch. He bait them into sinning in their lives. And so God, through John, is making that clear that he knows this. He goes on to say in verse 15, Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans were practicing an immoral lifestyle. Again, we don't know who they are exactly, but Gnosticism was alive and well in that time. That's a, the Greek word is for knowledge, people who have secret knowledge. And, and they had this idea that when you're in the flesh, because the flesh is evil, you can do whatever you want in this life. You can be as immoral as you want, because all that really matters is once you leave the body, your, your spirit, is now with the divine. So that's kind of the idea here. He says, repent, therefore. In other words, turn from your sin. Otherwise, I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I'm going to cut, slice and dice, and make them aware of the guilt they have in their lives. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious... He he uses every single letter. He talks about being victorious. There is a victory coming. You're going to stand on the the winning stand. You're going to be up there. You're going to wear the crown of life. To the one who overcomes, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. Believe that's a reference to the manna, of course, that fell from the skies, rained from the skies for the Israelites when they didn't trust God to provide. He says, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. But by the way, it's going to come down every day, so don't try and save any up. When you do, it's going to turn to maggots, all right? So each day, eat what you can, and then trust me for the next. That is a way to live, isn't it? Just trusting God each and every day. And now he's saying, now trust, because in the end, you're going to be at that heavenly banquet table. You are going to be feasting again on the food of God. So that's the hope that he wants to give them in that. The overall, oh, the last verse I want to talk about here, he says, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Hold on to that verse. I'm going to come back to that important verse. The overall message in, in this book to the church, in this letter to the church in Pergamum is repent. Repent. Get over yourself. Stop blaming. Stop trying to justify that it's okay for you to sin because of how you're being treated. Don't do that anymore. He's saying the sin that you have in your lives, you are accountable for it. Acknowledge it. It's like every Sunday when we do our confession. It's it's not because God doesn't know what's going on in your life and mine. He just wants us to get real in his presence. He wants us to acknowledge that we know And that's what he's telling them as well. You know, the clearest evidence we have that the battle that these people are in and that we're in too is a spiritual battle is the sin we have in our lives. Because that's the devil, it's the world and our flesh that is pulling us away from God, our creator, our redeemer, the one who has set us apart with faith in Jesus. If we didn't have sin and temptation through Satan and the world, we wouldn't have to worry about it. But we do. And God says, look, don't live that way. It's a matter of life and death eternally. Now, I put down a reference here to a gospel reading from the gospel of Luke, the 13th chapter. I'm not going to read through these five verses, but I just want you to know a little bit about the story here. Luke 13, 1 to 5. There's a couple stories. Jesus is addressing Pharisees, people who think they're better than anybody else. They're really good at judging others. And he's saying, so, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than others because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Or those who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think you're better than they? Okay. He tells them two stories that we don't know where they come from, but his whole point is don't go thinking that just because people are having bad things happen to them, it's because of the sin in their lives, and that you have the right to judge them. I can't, I don't know if any of you remember this, but when 9-11 happened, there was some of that out there. there I, I heard some preachers out there saying this, well, you know, those 3,000 that were in the towers, whew, they must have done something to deserve that. Serious. Leona? Happened to you, happened to you by a pastor coming in her after she tore her foot nearly off in, in rollerblading at her age. Anyway, and uh, she, just kidding, It was a long time ago. So she was very young. And, uh, but the pastor came in and said, so what did you do to deserve this? I, you know, the punishment for our sin took place on the cross. It doesn't mean he doesn't discipline us though to turn us back to him. But, but, the, but the punishment took place with Jesus Christ on that cross. And, and, and that is what we got to hold to. And that's what Jesus' point is in Luke 13, 1 to 5. He says, if you're a believer, then live it out. Live your life for Jesus Christ, and you're going to bear fruit. You're going to bear fruit of good works, of loving God, loving people, and you're also going to bear the fruit that will last, which is fruit of believers because of how you're living your life. So, this culture, though, this culture described in here, is an awful lot like the culture we talked about last week in the letter written to the church in Smyrna. It's also a culture a lot like the one we're living in today. Very much like what we're going through. There's no black and white anymore when it comes to morality, is there? I mean, there might be for you. I hope there is for you. My black and white is in here for morality. But not in the world. It's, it, it's not there at all. Anything goes. Anything goes. And here's here's the thing that I find really um, disconcerting, the connection we have with this culture, is that if you stand up against the accepted immorality in our society, in our world today, you're going to get taken out. You're going to get taken out. You will be attacked, there's no doubt about that. You will get mocked, you will get ridiculed, you'll get fined, get put in prison, lose your place of business, am I right? It's happening. It's very real. It's very real in our own culture today right here. This is why this book is so interesting to, to know more about and how they see it. Because we're not so different than they are right now. Their persecution is more severe, but not more severe than people in other parts of the world today. And God gives Satan this title. He is the prince of this world. He's the prince of this world. Not the king. Jesus is the king. He ultimately is the ruler, and he rules through us, by the way. He rules through the Christian church, his word, his sacraments, and our prayers. That's how Christ rules today. But Satan, as the prince of the world, is demanding, as the prince, that you follow him. How's our world doing? How's our culture doing? How are we doing? Because that's the reality. And and, and what's happened to this church is it's happened inside their church. This church itself has compromised what God says in here. I want you to think about that because when we talk about what God says in here, what he calls a sin is a sin. I call a sin from up here. What people say, oh, you can't talk about abortion, you can't talk about gay rights, those are political issues. No, they were biblical issues before they were political issues. And so they're going to be talked about because that's in here, all right? You know what our biggest enemy is, though, to that line of thinking that this is the authoritative word of God? Our churches who say it's not anymore. Because the Bible is being treated like, much like uh, many people treat the Constitution of the United States. Not as a document that's been time-tested and lasts for all time, but as a living document that will change as society changes. That's how this is getting changed. Not here, but in many churches. Well, well, I really don't think this is true because society now accepts that sin, accepts that sin, and so forth and so on. And that is what has happened inside this church in, in, in program. They have compromised what God has says in here, to conform to what the world is teaching and living out there. Their ethics have become lousy, their idolatry is ridiculous, and their immorality, sexual immorality, is off the charts, and God knows that, and they need to repent, because they are his church. And they are called by God as we are to give a witness to Jesus Christ. One of the things that this book of Revelation does is it makes real clear the reality of evil, that evil is alive and and well. And I want to talk about that, that nature of evil for, for just a moment by addressing these three concepts, the dragon, the beast, and the number 666. Some of this is in chapter 12 of Revelation and some in chapter 13. But I want to begin with this verse. In Revelation 2.13, the devil is present among us. How many of you ever heard the phrase, the devil goes to church too? Satan goes to church too. Yeah, he does. Jesus said to the believers in Pergamum, I know where you live and where Satan has his throne. Okay? Well, we live in the same place. And the important thing for us to remember is that Satan is alive and his minions and he's active and he is here to take us out. Second point, the dragon that's talked about in Revelation chapter 12 is the devil. Okay? Satan is an incredible mimicker. All right? He he mimics things to confuse people and get people to follow him. In Revelation 12:9 it says very clearly the great dragon was hurled down, who's that dragon? That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the world astray. Very clear. The dragon is Satan. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now, when did that happen? Well, it happened before Adam and Eve, all right? Sometimes we say the first sin was by Adam and Eve, when in actuality it had happened before that. It had happened in the heavens when um, Lucifer himself said, "Uh, yeah, me being just under you isn't good enough. You know, I want to be God. He was hurled down from the heavens, and so were those angels who followed him, which, it appears, were many the next thing I want to address is in Revelation 12, 17. Very clearly this. Make no mistake about this. The devil is out to get you. The devil is out to get every single one of us. It says this. Then the dragon, who's the dragon? Satan. Was enraged at the woman. Who's the woman? Genesis 3, 15. Genesis three fifteen. The curse on Satan, I will put enmity, hostility between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. You will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. It is the mother of Jesus, goes on to say, enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. Who's that? Raise your hand. That's right. He's after you. Those who keep God's commands and hold to their testimony about Jesus. He's after us. He doesn't need to go after the people who aren't believers. He already has them. So he's going after those who are still holding the testimony of Jesus. In Revelation 13, verses 1 to 18, I'm not going to walk through that. You need to do that on your own. This is where it talks about the beasts, all right? This is also where people can get really confused or start freaking out when reading the book. Because the word beast is a scary, what comes to mind when you think of a beast? First thing I think of is the beast in Aliens, right? Or The Predator. you seen those movies? I'm not, I, I'm not saying you should, but anyway, I did. Anyway, the word for beast, though, in the Bible refers to an animal, but different animals. Acts 28 uses the word. It refers to the snake that bit Paul. Hebrews 12, it's a farm animal. And John says he sees a vision of an animal, a very weird animal. In verses 1 and 2 of thirty, it says the animal has ten horns with crowns on them and seven heads. It looks like a leopard, but it also looks like a bear and a lion. I don't care what it looks like. It is a creature you don't want to mess with. All right? I'd see that. I would run. I have one. I, I used to love camping. I don't do very much of that. But do not read this chapter while you're camping. Just don't do it, because it, it, it can be frightening. It describes a powerful, a, a relentless animal that's after you. That's what evil's like. That's what the devil is like. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7 I often quote this. This is for me, my, myself, one of those Uh, Touchstone verses for me Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God And he will lift you up in due time Meaning his time not my time Alright And he will lift me up in, in his time Cast all your anxiety on him Because he cares for you But then it goes on to say this Be alert and of sober mind Your enemy the devil Prowls around like a roaring lion Seeking someone to devour I don't remember when exactly I kind of put this together I don't think I read it anywhere maybe I did and I'm just stealing it I don't know but all I remember is that I'm thinking boy if the curse on Satan in the garden was to crawl on your belly the snake and eat dust what are we made out of dust what are we going to return to dust who's Satan after us and so the devil, like a roaring lion, is seeking someone to devour. Pretty clear. The devil's out to get us. And the last point here in chapter 13 is the devil is deceptive. Very deceptive. I want to read this verse three. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astonished and followed his lead. So we have a beast. It's the devil. But as it, as it appears to the people, it appears to them, oh, it had a fatal wound and God healed, and so the world followed him. Who's he mimicking? Jesus. The risen Jesus. That's why he's getting people to follow him. He's mimicking Jesus Christ. In Revelation 5 verse 6, it describes this beast as the lamb who was slain. That's Jesus. But he's not the beast. But this is Satan mimicking the beast. In verse 14, this beast is described as one who died and came to life, Jesus Christ. He said that of himself. Evil is pretending not only to be good, but to be godly. That's how good Satan is. Don't you ever wonder why some evil attacks you, and, and it's befuddling. It doesn't make sense. I tell you, any, any time something really bad happens it doesn't make sense, I tell you, Satan's behind it. He uses just enough truth to make something believable, but twists it. We have to be very, very careful. And that's what this message is to these people as well. And it's all a lie. In verse 11 of chapter 13, then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, like Jesus, but it gives itself away. This is God talking. It spoke like a dragon. So it looks like a lamb, looks like Jesus, but it reveals its true nature when it opened its mouth. So what is going on here is, is, is that... Satan is being revealed. He's being exposed. And God is doing that for these people. And he's doing that for us today. And with that said, one last thing I want to talk about, the deception of Satan, has to do with the number 666, the mark of the beast. I can't tell you how many movies and books I've read and seen out there that talk about we're going to have an implant and, you know, into our back of our hand or our forehead or whatever, we're going to get this mark that's on us. I don't think that's what it's going to be. And verse 16 of chapter 13 says, "The second beast was given power to force all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on the right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast, or the number of the name of its name." The mark symbolizes slavery to Satan. His name or number that's on our hand or on our head means we are acting like we belong to him. And what's going on in this society, what is, what is happening right here, is that people who are standing up against what God says is evil are being taken out. They're taken out of their businesses. They are being mocked. They're being ridiculed. They're being fined. They're being imprisoned. It goes on and on and on. This is a reference to being enslaved back to Satan. Christ came as a redeemer. You know what that means? He redeemed us. He bought us back from Satan. And this is a reference to to, to Satan then enslaving people back to him. And if you do not accept the world's immorality, you're going to have trouble in this life. The people here, we're having all kinds of trouble. We've already seen it in our society, haven't we? With trade guilds, with businesses, bakers and florists, some of the political stuff going on in the judicial system. You stand up against what God says is evil, people will try and take you out. Mike Newman, the author of that book I showed you, says this. He says, not being able to buy or sell without the mark, without the mark, would bring about difficulty and suffering. How people knew if you were marked by Satan or enslaved by Satan isn't because you have 666 on your forehead. All right? It's how you act. It's how you're living your life. Do you not only tolerate and accept, but do you condone what is evil in God's eyes? When you do, you're enslaved because God says no. And, and this is, these are the words that God is giving these people then, and they are for us today as well. This was happening to Christians, Mike Newman goes on to say, in the first century who were being excluded from the trade guilds that would allow them to conduct business. So Satan is trying to set them up and set us up make himself appear not to be so different than Jesus. I mean, having his name or his mark on you means you're such a nice person because you're tolerant and accepting and condoning of everything, right? Oh, you're a Christian? Well, how can you be a Christian if you say that what somebody's doing is wrong? That's not showing grace. See how it's twisted? And that's what's being done. Now, while the text, as it's translated suggests the 666 is the mark of a man. A better translation is it's the mark of humanity, of all humans who are allowing themselves to be a slave, enslaved by Satan. The prince of this world wants to get us to wear his name, not the name of Jesus, but his name, to live for him. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. The number 666, we're talking about numbers. These people understood it. They know that the number 666 falls short, one number short of 777, which makes it inadequate, which makes it incomplete, which makes it a creature that is evil that God can take out like that, and he will when he chooses. He's nothing. He is no match for Jesus Christ, and in the end, he's the one that is going to get taken out. There's a whole lot of of deception of the devil that gets exposed in the book of Revelation. That's why it's exciting to read it, but But that's the point. It's it's exposed. And that's what these people needed to know. What's causing all this? Oh my, my battle isn't against my neighbors. It's not against the government. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual evil. That's what's happening here. And this section of Revelation, regardless I think of what anybody says this isn't designed to outline specific Roman rulers or future political leaders or some antichrist coming down the road. It's also not designed to give you nightmares about some creepy animals, which it probably will do to some. It's designed to make it clear that evil is real. It is present. It is destructive. It is powerful. It is deceptive. Be careful. But what God does for them and for us in this book is he puts all cards on the table. Here they are. And Satan does not want that. That's the last thing that he wants. And I have to believe that the people then, when they got this letter, they said, you know what? The greatest evil they really ever saw took place on that cross. The greatest evil in the world is when a sinless man, Jesus Christ, takes on your sin and mine, the sin of the entire world. You talk about an injustice. There's no greater injustice in the world. But throughout that that time of suffering and dealing with that injustice, he never stopped giving witness to his father. He never stopped giving witness to the people that through trusting in him, they will be saved. Yes, they will die, but they will rise, just as he did because they're forgiven, they will have victory. And he's saying, in the meantime, repent of your sin. Don't let your life be ruled by Satan. Keep loving God and loving the people he puts in your life and he will see you through. You know, one of the favorite sayings here is, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, You know, meaning that There's no single human being in this world ever who has been in greater or lesser need than the forgiveness and love of Jesus Christ. But you know what? Sometimes we think there are. And when we're facing injustice, it's easier to point outside of ourselves and just, just take a look at who we are. And God is saying, you know what? Forget about them. Forget about pointing out there. Just get humble yourself before the Lord and turn back to him. Now, back to that verse I kind of left you hanging. Michael Newman said his favorite expression in the Bible is in Revelation 2, 17, where it says, to him who overcomes, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. A white stone. Now, now though we don't know exactly, you know, what the practice of white stones was for, we do know what it means is you get a do-over. How many of you like do-overs, huh? How many of you golf? Yeah, okay. <laughs> do-overs are good. It's a fresh start. And he's saying, you don't have to tell everybody. You don't got to make it public. Just tell Jesus and then live it out. So we did this study at our staff meeting this last week and leave it to Matt Headley to say, Whitestone, wow, it's like Whitestone Boulevard. We have this church on Whitestone Boulevard with a cross out front that people from all over the community come when they're in need and need a do-over because they know what it means. You know what it means to come here. We need do-overs. If we didn't think we need it, if you didn't think you need it, you wouldn't be here. We need that chance to say, I'm sorry and no, I'm forgiven and get the start again. This last, uh, last Saturday night, um, I'll give this away. I might have appeared a little tired on Sunday morning because we didn't get back to one in the morning. I never go out on Saturday nights except when Robbie Robinson calls. He was my music conductor for eight years in California, and he, is the, he has been the musical conductor of Frankie Valley for 40 years, and um, he was in town. Well, <laughs> he was close. He was in San Antonio. And uh, so, uh, so we drove there um, and, and got to see him and Stephen and, and Kelly and me and Leona. And uh, so Robbie takes us to the wells of the theater, the Majestic Theater, and we went into his room and, and um, quite a suite, you know, down there in the wells. And, um, and Stephen noticed something. I noticed it, too. I just didn't say anything about it. Stephen says, well, how come your picture isn't on the door? Frankie's picture's on the door to your suite, you know? And Robbie says, you know, it's a good thing you brought that up. I use that to teach the band, because he pretty much rules the, the band. He says, about humility. Every time they talk, about, I don't like the way Frankie does this, or I don't like the way Frankie does that. He goes, yeah, whose picture's on your door? Whose name is on your check? So whose are you when you're working for Frankie? Right? You live for him. And he said that it always gives them an opportunity to talk about Jesus Christ. Who, whose am I? And I've shared this a lot. I, most of us have experienced this. When we were younger, our parents would say as we were leaving to a party or someplace, remember who you are. You know, I used to think I'm supposed to be a brower. You know, this is no, they meant remember whose you are. You're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus. And this is the message that, that God is giving the, these people. It's not a lot of fun sometimes, is it? It's hard to be faithful to Jesus, especially in a society where everything and anything seems to go. But we are called by God to give witness, loving God and loving the people he puts in our lives and still stand up for what we believe. And the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection to these people meant they were getting a new beginning, the same Is true for us today. Every day we get a do-over. Every day we get to be reminded of the hope we have. Our sin is forgiven. And because Jesus rose from that grave, so will you. What a promise. This letter to the people back then was written to us as well. And Jesus wanted to convey to them and to us this truth. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you've been through, no matter How many sins, how often you've sinned, the kind of sin. In the end, in the end, and in the words of Daniel Decker, who happened to be at our staff meeting as well, the fix is in. Satan loses, and Jesus wins. And everything is going to be okay. Amen?